let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the Apostle Paul wrote most of our letters that we have in the New Testament. And if you go through and you kind of follow Paul's writings, you, you'll realize uh, he, he speaks mainly to doctrine and to worldview. I think if Paul were here and he were communicating to many of us, there would be quite a few of us that would look at Paul and be like, listen, bro, just tell me what you want me to do, right? Just tell me what you want me to do. And as you walk through Paul's writings, he, he does that. Uh, he actually does that pretty frequent. Uh, but he kind of does it in these lists that come out. Uh, he, he writes in a way in which these doctrines and these worldviews that he's presenting are just peppered with practical charges, callings on the believer. Uh, and they're absolutely prescriptive. They, they read like, do this, don't do this, right? Absolute prescriptive challenges to the believer and again they're often in these lists and these lists that are there they're, they're usually not comprehensive matter of fact if he's writing to the Ephesians and then he's writing to the Romans or he's writing to the Corinthians and the Romans there'll even be some different things in the same list and so the idea behind most of these lists is to give an example uh, again prescriptive charges things that we do but they're trying to unpack again these usually these larger doctrines and again, I think there's kind of two groups of people. There are the groups of people who love lists. You know, you're the person who, who makes lists all the time. I got, I got any list people in the room? Yeah, I see a few of you. You like to make lists. We don't necessarily always keep them, but we definitely like to like write them out, right? And for you, you kind of gravitate toward these lists, I think, that Paul makes. There are others in the room like, we just don't do lists. We're just doing the big thing, and we kind of miss it. I kind of like lists. I, I like to make lists. And uh, I'm goofy, so my lists are usually not very important. I'm really bad about, like, like really specific to-do lists. I, I, like, make lists to just remember things I don't want to forget. So I like things like bucket lists, you know, the, the, these things that you want to accomplish and, you know, these grand things. Usually people right now, and you're like, I want to climb Mount Everest before I die kind of a thing. I, okay, my bucket lists aren't usually as grand, all right? I said in the first service, I, I'm kind of goofy. If you get to know me, you'll realize I'm kind of goofy. And someone said, a friend of mine, Jake Hart, who's about to go to India, he goes, Daniel, that's not called goofy. That's just called being weird. 
And I'm a little weird, I'm a little goofy, it's set up that way. And just my life and personality, it's endearing over time, right? But my list, <laughs> I have to grow on you a little bit. My list are things I just don't want to forget, things that I want to do in my life. And so I know they're kind of cheesy, but I just want to share a few of them with you, all right? I looked at them, I got a few. The, the first one, and I know you've probably heard of this, but I just want to be the guy who walks into SeaWorld with a fishing pole and a tackle box. I want to be that guy. I know it'll be short-lived, but I just think it's funny, and I want to do it. I, again, I'm an only child. It doesn't have to entertain anyone else. As long as it entertains me, I'm good. It's why I'm horrible on social media, by the way. I write something on social media, and everybody's like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, I, I, it's not for you. It's for me. And there's the thought of, why did you post it then? I, I don't know. It's for me. Second thing I want to do, you've got to heard about this prank where they'll put like a walkie-talkie or a Bluetooth speaker in their mailbox. So then when people are walking by the neighborhood, then they just start talking out of the mailbox. It's like a voice from on high, right? I want to do this so bad, but I don't live in a subdivision. There's nobody walking by my mailbox. So instead, I've kind of got my own version of this. I live on a river, and people float by in kayaks and inner tubes all the time. I want a remote control snake, right? that can just navigate in the water. And I want to develop a game that you get points. Like if you flip the kayak, that's a certain number of points. You know, the whole deal. So I want to do that. That's another thing I want to do. And then the last one, it's really simple, but I am aiming for many of your children, just so you know. I want to just convince some random kid that I am them from the future. That's a goal. And I don't want to forget these things, so I have them in a list with other similar types of goals. I was telling my wife I was going to share some of these, and she goes, what is the point of that? I said, there is none. I just, wanted, I just wanted to share. So we have lists, right? If you like lists, you're going to do really well this morning because Paul's going to just unpack these lists. Uh, John MacArthur said of this section, it is one of the hardest sections to outline in Scripture. And it's because it just goes kind of point by point down a list like bullet points. And so we're going to get there, but to get there, let's review really quick what's been happening in these first couple of verses in this first section in Romans. Last week, we learned first that we are called to make known our position, our position as redeemed followers of Christ. We are called to make this known. Verse 1, Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As a living sacrifice, last week we used the word repentance to give picture to this, to give definition to this, to turn, to die to self, and to find life in Jesus. And so we held that up, we kind of unpacked that and talked about it and realized that's our spiritual worship, this presenting, this making known our death to self and life in Christ. That's our calling as we are called to worship him. Second, we realize we are called to pursue what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the truth of our position in Christ, it transforms our mind. It transforms the way we think. It transforms our worldview. 
And in so doing, it increases our discernment. The more we understand our position in Christ, the more we are transformed by our mind, the more we increase in discernment and wisdom, and therefore it changes our pursuits. Changes our pursuits. In other words, discovering who we are, it transforms what we want. Transforms what we want. And that kind of sets us up for our big truth this morning that really bookends chapter 12. It is that we are called to pursue what is good. Church, you are called to pursue what is good. Paul will close this chapter by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let's just dive into the list and let's just work through it. And as we do, for those of you that are note takers, here's how I'd like for you to take notes this morning. Rather than just kind of noting the content as you walk through, I want you to note the application. I want you to note the conviction. Because these things, as we walk through them, they're not going to be some profound new information for many of you. For most of you, they will just be basic uh, principles of the faith in which we are called to. But ones we struggle with all the time. And so you're going to be, uh, as you walk through this, you're going to be aware through the work of the Holy Spirit where you need to grow, where you need to do good, where evil is making its way and becoming a snare and working to overcome your life and where you need to pursue what is good. And so what I want you to do as you walk through this, just make a list of applications, a list of observations that you need to take back to the Lord in prayer as you pursue what is good all right so first thing paul says be true to your position hate evil cling to good verse 9 let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good love is defined and inseparable from our position in christ let me say it again love is defined and inseparable from our position in Christ and here it is the first duty that Paul lists let love be without hypocrisy let it be true be true to your position in Christ of all the descriptors think about this of all the things that Paul could have described our love and called us to in this Paul used the word genuine why because in the context here Paul is calling us to be a living sacrifice to die to self our definition understanding love whatever that may be and to live as living sacrifices in our position in Christ not to think of ourselves more highly than we should and to make known this life in Christ and this works against us because our natural default is one of self-centeredness and that creeps into the way we also love. If you're like me in your self-centeredness, you cannot help but to love with the thought of how will I appear? What will others think of me? How, will they, how, how does this benefit me? Watch even this. How do I experience the effects of love? By the way, that's why we love those who are closer to us than those we don't know. 
let's just be honest, their value and their worth before God, their absolute value and worth as an image bearer before God is no different. We tend to love those that are closer to us. Why? Because we experience that love. It is so hard for us to separate our self-centeredness, even from the most basic charge to love. And so Paul says, let love be true of your position, dead to self, alive in Christ. Let it be true of our position. I'll break it down this way. You've heard sayings like this, right? Like you heard somebody say something like, I love John in the Lord, which is kind of code sometimes for I have to love John, right? Uh, The one I think we hear the most is the one that says, I love John, but I don't like him. You ever heard that? You said that, right? You didn't laugh as much because you say that one, right? All right, I love John, but, you know, I don't, I don't like him. See, this, this kind of thought, when we say that, here's what we're doing. We're separating ourselves from the love of Jesus in which we now live. I mean, can you imagine standing before Jesus and Jesus going, I love you, but I don't like you. I love you just because the Father made me. None of us think that is how Jesus defines love. We know that's not true. And that is the definition of love we're called to. Instead, Jesus says to his disciples in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Did you hear that? Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And watch the parallel in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let's just be honest. We know Jesus' definition of love isn't, I love you, but I don't like you. It's not true. We see that. And we recognize in this, this charge to love that It is a charge to be true to our position in Christ. It is an authentic love from our position that makes God's work in our lives known because we are a living sacrifice. He goes on, he says, hate evil, cling to what is good. Hate evil, cling to what is good. Despise evil. Hate it. Hate sin. Our sin should frustrate us. It should convict us. It should make us feel bad. Because we should despise it. Yes, we should know and rest in the victory that we have in our position. But we also should be broken in our sin. And these two things are not in contradiction with one another. They are the same. And Paul says, hate Sin, hate evil, despise evil. There can be no truce with evil. Instead, he says, fasten yourself or cling to good. It is the same term here within the marriage bond. Right? The two flesh, they become one. They're joined together as one flesh. It's the same term. It is the same idea. There is a pursuit, passion, an aim. This isn't just saying try to do good no it is saying be stuck to it be committed to it grasp a hold of it let it be fixed to you 
He goes on in verse 10 and says, love and honor one another as family. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another as family. This is our position in Christ after all. Paul's made that clear in Romans chapter 8. Again, he comes into the beginning of this chapter in Romans 12. He says, brothers, because for those of us who are redeemed, we are adopted into the family of God, joint heirs with Christ. And so too, brothers and sisters with one another. We are family. And so the, the two practical kind of things that just jump out at me and make that illustration of what it means to love as family is we celebrate one another's strengths and we're patient with one another's weaknesses. If you're ever around a family, you know, and somebody in the family is really good at something, the rest of the family is usually kind of like, you know, you listen to parents or grandparents. Oh, man, grandparents. If the grandkid is good at something, all the grandparents' friends know, right? Like they're celebrating the gifts that God's given them. They're excited for them. Imagine that same excitement within the body as God has gifted this person and this person. And at the same time, think of the patience we show our family. I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. No one probably wrongs us more than our family. No one does little things to frustrate us and annoy us and all those things more than our family. And if they were just somebody over here on the peripheral, we'd just be like, get away. But we don't do that with our kids. We don't do that with our spouse, right? We're not called to do that. Instead, we're patient with their weaknesses because they're our family. And to unpack this further, he says, respect one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. This, this, this call to outdo one another, it, it is a, it's a, it's a com competition in its illustration, but it's not meant to be a competition. It's meant to illustrate something. If I'm trying to outdo someone in showing honor, where is my focus? My focus is on the other person. So if I'm trying to outdo Larry in showing him honor, my focus is that Larry receives the honor. Where is my focus not? On the honor I'm receiving. It's an illustration that calls us to show respect and honor outward. It calls our vantage point to look outside of ourselves. Why? Because we are dead to ourselves, and our life is now a living sacrifice in position with Christ. He says, don't be lazy. Be intense about life in Christ. Serve with all your might. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Paul says, work, work strive put forth effort in the church there is this growing war against effort it, it's a lie that grace leads us to inaction that's a lie and i think what's happening in that is as a culture christians are seeking to be transformed by renewed emotions rather than truth that aims their emotions, they're seeking to be transformed by the way they feel. And the thought is, I am redeemed. I am victorious. 
I shouldn't feel conviction. I shouldn't feel brokenness. I shouldn't feel defeat. I should feel victory all the time because I'm in Jesus. And there is a partial truth to that that is sincere and is there and is present. But to avoid that, to avoid the feeling of conviction in our sin, we stop trying. Because the calling to holiness to be good and acceptable and perfect is a calling we can't reach on our own. Do we get that? None of you are going to reach that on your own. That is the work of Christ in us. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, working through us, conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. None of us will get that on our own. And so as we reach for this thing that we will inevitably fall short, that we will inevitably feel frustrated and defeat, it becomes easier for us to just say, well, we don't try. We don't try. There's no effort. But that's a lie. The truth is, grace leads us to action. Our New Testament is filled with prescriptive calls to grace-fueled effort. Just like we're seeing here in Romans 12. The New Testament is filled with these prescriptive calls to grace-filled effort. We long to be conformed into the image of Christ, and we work. Paul says, don't be lazy. But he also says, be intense and passionate. The word he uses here is fervent in the Spirit. It's a great word. It means boiling. Like, it literally means boiling. Be boiling in the Spirit. Here's the point always on ready active in service as i get older this is harder i'm just confession 20 years or so more than that i guess now i'm getting old like i'm tired you guys just get tired i grow weary in fighting to do good i grow weary and so catch this awesome balance that, that's here in this same statement, but one side's negative, one side's positive. The call here is not strictly to pragmatism. Don't just work and just get things done. And it's not just a call to be strictly passionate and run around with zeal with no knowledge and wisdom of what you're doing. But it is a call to purposed all-in service. One of my favorite examples of this is in Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. By the way, as like an 18, 19-year-old, Jonathan Edwards sat down and wrote 70 resolutions for his life. If you want to be challenged, go back and read those resolutions. They're good. They'll help you. The sixth one said this, I am resolved to live with all my might while I live. That's the idea. To die to self and to live in position with Christ with all my might while I live. There's effort in that. There's work in that. Don't be lazy in that. But pursue that with intensity. Find your joy and your position. Persevere in prayer, he says in verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice in the hope of the gospel. Church, listen, what God has begun in you, He will finish. 
God has declared you righteous, He will fulfill His promise to make you into what He has declared you to be. It is as good as done. Have hope that you will not just be declared righteous, but you will be righteous. You will be conformed into the image of Christ. This will happen in you because God is good and He will fulfill His promise in your life. Rejoice in the hope of the Gospel. You will win. You will win. This hope, it is a contentment. as like Paul uses contentment, which is, It is well with my soul. It is well. And so he says, persevere in prayer. Constant prayer. Life is going to be hard. He says, constantly pray. Prayer is worship. First and foremost, understand that when we pray, we worship because we acknowledge God as supreme. We acknowledge He has authority. That's why you ask Him for things. That's why you go to Him and recognize Him as creator and sustainer and healer. That's why you pray and you ask these things because you believe He has the authority to move mountains on your behalf. And so there's this call to continue to worship that would fix our eyes back to Him and lead us to hope in the Gospel. He says in verse 13, help one another, run to your neighbors with love, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, help one another, show hospitality, work together to meet the church's needs. We're called to do this. We're called to actively seek it. That word seek There in verse 13, it's a cool word. It's one of these examples of why we should study. Because without study, you would miss the coolness of this, all right? This idea of seek, it is to chase after in order to catch. To run after in order to catch. It's often translated persecuted or persecute in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 26, Paul is writing about his life before he was a believer in verse 11 he says in raging fury against them i persecuted same word persecuted them to foreign cities chased them down in order to catch them that is the idea in which we are called to have hospitality for others that we would not just sit and wait and say hey if you need anything but we would be like the good samaritan and we would cross Whatever is between us and the person in need, we would chase them down. We would look to the world around us with assertiveness to chase them down in love and hospitality. Not in like, you know, weird stalker like kind of stuff, but in love, right? Right, you with me? Everybody's like, yeah, don't like chase somebody, grab them and say I'm supposed to be Less weird, right? More love. But the point that I want you to catch we are called to be assertive in our hospitality. It's not just wait, it's proactive. We go after, we see the need, and we run after them. Verse 14, seek good for all, seek evil for no one. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Seek good for all, seek evil for no one. 
If Jesus blesses and acts in goodness, who are we to do different? He goes on in verse 15, and he says, Feel for one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, celebrate with others. Celebrate with others. When the person that you work with gets the promotion instead of you, celebrate with them. Celebrate with others. Hurt with others. When others experience suffering and loss, hurt with others. Let me me give you really a practical thing I want you to catch in this. This requires us to aim our emotion from moment to moment, from person to person. This command. We can't follow our emotion. We have to aim it. You say, what do you mean by that? I've shared this before. As a pastor, one of the hardest things in just day-to-day life and serving a church, especially this size, is the randomness of what is going on. It's not random, but the difference of what's going on in everyone's life. It is not uncommon for me to have a meeting with someone, and they are there in that meeting, and they have just experienced great loss. Someone in their inner circle has died. Someone is hurting them, harming them. There is abuse. It is hard, and there is suffering. And they'll leave my office, and five minutes later, we'll in walk someone else into my office who is celebrating the conversion of someone they have prayed for for 20 years. And they're there to talk about baptism and to celebrate God's work in their life. And they'll leave, and the next person will walk in, and it'll swing right back to some form of suffering. In order to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, I must aim my emotion from moment to moment, from person to person. Not in some kind of fake thing, but in the truth and the reality of where they are. Verse 16, be humble, Paul says. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Here's how I want to say this to you. Don't be above eating at the kids' table. I mean, I could use a lot of different examples to unpack this. This is just an easy one. Don't be above eating at the kids' table. Their conversation, it may not engage you. Their humor may seem shallow to you. Their manners may be lacking your refined standards. Their company may not open doors for you, but you are not above them. It's not mentioned, but the, like, the other side of that is just as prideful. Don't be so prideful not to eat at the grown-up table. Their conversations may seem over your head. Their manners may embarrass you. Their company may put you in the spotlight. You are no worse or no better than them. Live in harmony with one another. Never be wise in your own sight. Don't think of yourself above another. Verse 17, let go of offense. Set your mind to make known what is good. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Church, let go of offense. Let go of offense. In Christ, you do not have the right to hold offense. He did not hold offense against you. You have no right to be in Christ and hold offense. And let me just go ahead and unpack this one step further and just kind of meditate through this with you for just a moment. 
We have no absolute authority to hold offense against one another. It doesn't exist. You say, what do I mean? If someone held offense against me, and it really had authority, then how can Christ have no offense against me? The point is, this illusion of offense that we hold against one another, it's just that. Our sin is against our Creator. Our offense is against Him and Him alone. And when we hold offense against one another, we are living for ourselves and we are not living as living sacrifices in our position in Christ. We have no right to hold offense. And so, don't repay evil for evil. Don't go there. Instead, be wise. Give thought to do what is honorable. To put your actions on display as a living testimony of the Gospel. Verse 18 through 20, pursue peace even with your enemies. He unpacks it further. He says in verse 18, if possible, so far as you, it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never arrange yourselves. Or arrange yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Here's the point. Trust God with justice. He is the judge. You're not the judge. He is the judge. You're not the jury. You're not the lawyer. You're the guilty defendant. And listen, how holy is God, the God you present, if you cannot trust His justice? So how do you act? You act the opposite of evil. You love, you do what is good, and you convict your enemy with love. The design here isn't to, you know, that'll make him suffer. I'll be nice to him and then he'll really suffer. That's not the goal. That's not the point. Rather, that will make known true peace in Jesus. That'll make the hope of the Gospel known. Verse 21, finally, conquer evil with good do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good church do not grow weary in doing good as the team comes up be reminded that sin seeks to ensnare you to hold you back and we are called to overcome evil with good reminds us and brings us back all the way to our big truth that we are called to pursue what is good what is acceptable and perfect before God and so two big ideas that I'm going to leave you with things that you can kind of implications you can begin to unpack and talk about in your homes this week just kind of a little bit of a frame for the list first we are set apart for the will of God what does that mean he defines what is good he defines what is good. Not you, not me. We're dead to ourselves. We are alive in Him. Our position is now in Him. And He defines what is good. And you are set apart for Christ's likeness. To be like Him. To live in His definition. Second, we are set apart for action. Church, you are called to action. 
by the mercies of God, you are called to overcome evil with good. Verse 1, he says to test, right? It means to practice, to put into practice. Do good. Do good. This is possible in you because the Holy Spirit indwells you. Listen, none of us have anything good to offer left to ourselves. That is a moralism that will fall short again and again. But every believer has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit who works in you. It is possible for you to grow in goodness, to grow in holiness, to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit that is in you is greater than the world. And so if you're here, and you're hearing all this, and you're thinking, I want to do good, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there's never been a point in time in your life where you've cried out in faith and repentance and died to self and surrendered your life to Him. That is the step toward holiness. That is the step toward righteousness. That is the step toward our purpose and our belonging in the family of God. And this morning, please don't leave this place without talking to someone about it. In just a moment, you can go right out these doors to the left. There's an area called the hub. There are people who are back there who would love to talk with you about it. But for those of us who have been redeemed and who have died to self and found life in Jesus, church, we are called to action. Let us overcome evil with good that the glory of God may be made known and that we may live our lives as living sacrifices in worship. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are a good God. Thank you for your Son and his work on the cross. Lord, as we gather to take the Lord's Supper and to remember his work, may we stand in awe of your love, of your holiness, of your goodness. And as you reveal yourself to us and our position in you, May we be compelled to action. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.